This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Um, so uh, Clarence and I will have a conversation for about 30 minutes about the films and also your work, Clarence, as a composer and its relationship to some of the films that we saw tonight. And it, it's interesting, one of the um, impressions I had uh, watching the films again, particularly Zero Crossing, the last film, the 41-minute long film, is that from a film perspective, what's interesting is that one of the points of reference uh, could be what was known as the City Symphony films. Mm -hmm. And these were films that were made, um, uh, you know, really during the 20th century that were portraits of cities. And what's so interesting about this film is that in some ways it's the ambient sound that's been recorded or that was recorded at another time Mm -hmm. than uh, the video that was overlaid or filmed. Yeah, but the video was made parallel to... Oh, it was made at the same time. Same time, on the same trip. But I I think what's very interesting is how significant the the soundtrack is Mm -hmm. as a composition. And I'm wondering if we can maybe talk about the way you were thinking about the the sound that was recorded and the nature of the sound as a composition in relationship to the image. Well, one of the big influences in my life in the 70s was John Cage. Mm-hmm. And he liked ambient sound. So he used to say, well, just open the window and you hear music. Meaning not uh, ra- transistor, uh, not radios and cars, but simply mm-hmm. the sounds of the traffic and all of that. And so that inspired me a lot in the 70s. And another composer who inspired me was Mauricio Cargill, who actually transformed the radio play into recordings, ambient sounds. Soundscapes became uh, the rule of that time, it was mid-70s. Mm-hmm. And so I had the idea, in uh, 1978, I went to Calcutta with a good tape recorder and microphones and recorded over a period of three months and brought that back and made a composition out of it. But there I didn't have videos. I had a Super 8 camera, but I didn't think of um, you know, doing things at the same time. But on this round-the-world trip, I decided I was going to, to make the videos there as well. So I was standing there with my little camera and binaural microphones in my ears and made the recordings trying to be as still as I could. Every time I swallowed, which I had to, there was a, <laughs> a gulping sound, which I was able to edit out. I did all the editing myself, the sound editing. Mm-hmm. And um, it, I think, took about 40 hours to edit all of that. And so finally it was made into a piece which was broadcast in 2001 on Cologne Radio. But uh, the video had to wait because the technology wasn't good enough at that time. Mm -hmm. And I had a Panasonic, uh, what was it? I forgot what kind of a camera, but it was a mini DV. Mm -hmm. There were mini DV cassettes. And so all the recordings were waiting like for 15 years until I finally found a couple of students in Santa Barbara, in MAT, who were willing to help me on this project. And I had the exact plan because we followed the plan of the sound. Mm -hmm. 
but it wasn't synchronized. Sometimes I had to synchronize, because if a bus door slammed shut and you didn't hear it, that'd be strange. So I managed to move the sounds around, and in Brooklyn Station, for instance, in that station, which after you saw the Twin Towers, there it was a lot of editing of the video as well. And I did a, a lot of the video editing. I probably did all the video editing and they did the montage. So it was a lot of work to get sounds which you could actually see synchronized with the sounds that you heard. But mm. otherwise, there wasn't much of that. Mm. Sometimes the people were talking behind me, but all of that was recorded. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it answers your question, but... Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, the reason why I bring up this genre of uh, sort of quasi-documentary film is because I found that my attention in terms of where we were was drawn in primarily by what I heard yes. rather than what I saw. And that's the case with so many yeah. uh, films that in, in some ways, you know, in a, in a sense, uh, lead you to focus in a different way. And I was wondering whether or not um, you found that in your work um, focused on film, whether your ongoing interest in creating a new idiom for language through music mm -hmm. is something that you're interested in exploring in, in the film work that you've done? I would say simply uh, the film was inspired by the sound. That is true. I think mm -hmm. you hinted at that. But since I'd made the videos and I liked what I saw, because I, I'd seen these videos years ago, mm -hmm. I thought... That would be great, and I tried to capture those parts of the videos that were really interesting. So basically, uh, I think I've gone off on a tangent, but mm -hmm. can you bring me back to where we were? Uh, well, in thinking about this idea about language related to composition mm -hmm. and its relationship to the image, because so much of your work, particularly the algorithmic compositional work that you've been doing over the years for which you know, your, your, your work was really, has been really original and contributed something new and different, the extent to which that also led you to see how to use or connect the images to the kinds of ideas about compositional strategies that you had been developing over time. Right. I've done it in so many different ways. In the mm -hmm. piece Kuri Suthi Bekar, it was taking the pianist's face, mm -hmm. but pixelated to 80... 88 by 88 pixels, and then using those pixels, because the piano has a range of 88 keys, and mm -hmm. so there were 88 pixels from the bottom to top, and the piece was so constructed that it had actually 88 notes, 88 sixteenth notes in one phrase. So I was able to take her face, derive from the pixels according to about five or six different criteria, mm -hmm. uh, criteria for exclusion, because I wasn't going to just scan the face from left to right, so you could see the, the pictures were totally filtered. They were just dots. It looked like a piano roll, as you said. Mm -hmm. And so according to these various criteria, I filtered the images. So that was a case where I actually derived the music from the image and then derived the film from the principle of making mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So that's a case where the image was structurally uh, dissolved, sort of, used in a very constructive way. Mm -hmm. But in Zero Crossing, it's exactly what we saw. 
Only at any given time, you heard four sound sources, and four you saw four videos. But they were all faded in and faded out, and this was at a 15-second rhythm. So every 15, 15 seconds for fading in, and then 15 seconds at the top, 15 seconds uh, remaining there again, and then finally down 15 seconds. So uh, finally, uh, each of these recordings was uh, actually two minutes in length, but when I say 15 seconds, that's because you could divide them into eight different sections according to what I was doing with the fade. And so the same principle applied to the video, but the video in this case wasn't chopped up. Like, for instance, on the Empire State Building, mm-hmm. I spent about, it was a 17-minute recording, and I spent hours cutting it down to two minutes. Hmm. So the sound was very often highly edited, chopped but you couldn't hear clicks or, or any jerky moments because I took great care to make sure that everything was smooth. Mm-hmm. And so, but I always got my two-minute recording, my two-minute editions, as I call them. And the trip around the world, by pure coincidence, lasted 80 days. <laughs> Total coincidence. Because <laughs> only when looking at the tickets that we had bought, I counted the number of days and it was 80. So the piece is 41 minutes for that reason. Because it's uh, two minutes and two minutes and two minutes, but always shifted. So, mm-hmm. in that case, it was really what I saw. And very little, there was a lot of video editing, but I mean, you, you don't notice it because I didn't, uh, for instance, try to chop things up. I just simply took that and made another join there and another join there. Mm-hmm. So, there were much fewer edits in the video. But when they were already, they were also two minutes long, each one of them. Mm. Interesting. Well, when we were talking earlier, we were talking about the way in which some of the shorter films, so we were just talking about Kuri Suti Bekar, which was the second film that looks like the piano roll that yes. unfolds. But in the first film that we saw, Uccelli um, Ugaresi, the Hungarian uh, yeah, birds. bird song, or bird's title, I mean, that is the yeah. title, yeah. Um, you know, which is a, a collage-like composition uh, where there were still images, there are some image, uh, moving images that were um, organized around a composition that was structured in terms of eighths and sixteenths. Yes. Can, can you tell us a little bit about how you were thinking about that film from a compositional point of view? Right. Well, first of all, the images had to be collected. Mm-hmm. So I am not sure in what order I did it, whether I had the rhythmic structure all worked out first, but I know that I had to collect films which had the topic of cruelty, the flesh, Mm -hmm. all of that plays a role in this movie. It's a very critical piece, the whole piece. It's all about the marketing of music as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so something I've always opposed. And so in that uh, film, after having all my... uh, the collections, mm-hmm. I wasn't going to use the sound, but just the images. Then I worked out this plan. I don't know how this happens, but it always, you know, ideas come and then they get realized if you like them. Mm-hmm. And so it was the idea of these three sections and these uh, three parts and each part having a first section and then a refrain. And then I worked out the refrain rhythm and then I decided to allocate single frames or f- four frames at a time 
or nine frames even at a time, and to allocate little segments like that to the rhythm that I'd devised. Yeah. In the refrains, but mm -hmm. the other part, the main part of each, the, the main section of each part, you had a flowing video. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's so interesting from a experimental film perspective, the first film is so reminiscent of a number of different kinds of experimental films or critical films, like um, Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle as a film that was made um, in, in relationship to this manifesto that was written that's also critical about mm -hmm. of uh, commodification of the world. Um, even uh, Chris Marker's work, uh, Sans Soleil, there's this more lyrical mm -hmm. approach to thinking about uh, images that are related to each other. But what I think is so interesting and in some ways uh, different from the theme of how experimental films from a film perspective is usually considered is the, the manner in which compositional strategies define so much uh, that you see and that you present. And I, I think the um, Estudia Siete uh, that's based partially on the Oscar Fischinger film, uh -huh. who's um, a very familiar figure in terms of experimental film with regard to the relationship between sound and then the drawn image, uh, is, a, is a really interesting context. Because in some ways, uh, you know, the role of the birds, the, the rectangular boxes that move across the screen, this way in which um, thinking about composition in a sense is visualized on the screen. Mm -hmm. Is that one of the ways in which you were understanding Fischinger's interest? Well, at the very beginning, uh, I, had, I used the original Fischinger film, which mm -hmm. got me into trouble. They threatened with uh, suing, which is a favorite pastime in the US. And uh, so I decided to make my own movie, but that since the, the entire sound, this one of the parallel lines in the soundtrack was based entirely on the fishing of films, mm -hmm. I decided to have my things moving. So it was again, in retrospect, like the film was the source, and then I got the music, and then I made the, my own film based on the music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is so interesting and familiar but also defamiliarized in the way that you were presenting yes. it. And all those colors, I was a little worried at the moment because some people are very sensitive to flickering screens, <laughs> and I hope that wouldn't cause a problem here. So uh, the colors uh, change according to the harmonies. Mm -hmm. The notes like D would have a certain color of the general screen, mm -hmm. and E would have a different color of the same screen. Yeah, now in the fourth film, Ertur, the 15-minute the film or 16-minute mm -hmm. film, yes, yes. We, we have uh, Mucha's, uh, you know, the, the work, the posters and paintings. And one of the really interesting facets of that particular film and also the, the visual imagery is that there's this, you know, quality of how these images come to life or how they become colorized. Mm -hmm. Yes. So there are all kinds of um, historical examples, visual historical examples like this. So the kind of development of chromolithography mm -hmm. was another feature of 
early 19th, early 20th century color imagery that was mass produced. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you, you explained that uh, this was really a commission. Yes. But I'm wondering in terms of the technique of colorization that happens or the 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 idea that the images in some ways become colorized. How are you thinking about that related to well, the, the music? When deciding on this widening aperture, mm -hmm. I decided that not only the spatial aperture would widen, but the color range. Mm -hmm. So I start with red, green, and blue of mm -hmm. equal values mm -hmm. and very gradually restore them to the original values. So that's how. And of course, I wrote all the software myself. So it wasn't as if there was any application out there that I could simply use. Which is another really interesting feature of your, your work as a composer. You know, as, I mean, earlier I mentioned algorithmic composition, but also uh, computer-based composition, for which you were one of the pioneers in developing. And I'm, I'm wondering in the evolution of your work in working in that manner, um, do you see there to be a, a way in which working with the image was happening on a travel, on a parallel track? Was yes. there an interest in connecting the two? You know, images interested me for a long, long time. In the 70s, 1976, I tried to map a piano composition of mine for two pianos with lots and lots of notes, 70,000 notes altogether in about 64 minutes, mm -hmm. I decided to make diagrams of each section of the piece in which a row of 30 uh, little color uh, rectangles, mm -hmm. but you'd have a, one small rectangle symmetrically inside the larger, and that'd be for the two pianos, the two colors. Mm -hmm. And I allocated for the 12 notes of the octave I allocated 12 different colors according to a color circle. And so I thought I could color sticker, uh, sticky uh, little mm -hmm. uh, sticky things uh, stick, yeah. and stick uh -huh. them to... But I thought, my God, it's impossible to, to fix them perfectly <laughs> where I need to. And that's 70,000 of them. Uh -huh. So I gave up in 1976. But in 2001, when I got my... Or 2000, when I got my PC... Mm -hmm. I began to program in color. And so I was able to, finally after making four of these um, 64 or 128 pages, after making four of them, I decided they were enough to demonstrate the principle. Mm -hmm. And I showed them my talks about the pieces, but I didn't make the whole lot. Uh, even that might be, it would be, I had the software, I could easily do it. Mm -hmm. But then I'd have to probably make the whole thing, put it on the internet and I haven't done that yet. I know my publisher would never have been able to afford to print a color book mm -hmm. with all these pages in it. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Now, there was, one of, there was one more film that I just wanted us to evoke, uh, Evanescent Evidence, which was the first-to-last film yes. and the most recent film right. that you made. Yes. So on the screen, we see um, really this white noise as image, yes. and um, you know, I, I, I think we had talked about, you know, some of the theories that you've had about white noise, how it's produced, um, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that, mm -hmm. and also um, the idea of how seeing it 
relates to what we hear? Yes. Well, first of all, I had the idea of taking in every single frame, every pixel on the screen from one of the 60 films. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, if the film had finished, then a blue pixel would be placed as a placeholder. So I kind of guessed what it would look like, but I didn't think of white noise in that context. Mm-hmm. And again, it was my own software that I wrote. And when I finished it and I looked at it, I said, look, I had white noise. And then as the film progresses, you see shapes moving. Because as the films thin out, a few films remain which then begin to be clear. And the same thing goes for the sound. Mm-hmm. So the sound has no association with white noise. But you see, because I, I decided to have one sound fragment per frame, rather than having one pixel at a time, then you would really have got noise. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to hear the sound a little bit. So every frame has one of eight of the 60 films, eight randomly picked films, the soundtrack of that. Mm-hmm. And if that film is finished, I mean, I just choose it, and if it's finished, you get silence. So that's why it thins out like mm-hmm. it did. But I wasn't thinking of white noise, actually. But when I saw the film, mm-hmm. I saw the images first, and then I mounted them to a film. I said, yeah, this is like white noise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so in effect, um, these did you see it as really a um, an expression of the of the the composition as opposed yes. to yes, I mean the, the image comp- for what it is. Well, it turned out in a way that I liked. So mm-hmm. I wasn't able to predict in advance everything that I would see in here. Mm-hmm. But when I finished it, I liked what I did. I changed a few things and then went back. It was always algorithmic, so the principle remains the same. But I might tweak the algorithm slightly, but never change that bit and that bit and that mm-hmm. bit. Once it's, uh, it goes, my software starts and it runs and gives me a result. And then I listen to it or I, I watch it. Mm-hmm. And as I say, if I don't like the result of one of my algorithms, then I just change the algorithm and start the process over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the way you think about um, composition as a language. Um, so, especially translating or translation mm-hmm. of speech, for example, into um, a form of composition or music. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were talking earlier a little bit about some of your interests in uh, phonology and the way in which reducing uh, sound, recorded sound, or recordings that you might make into microtonal objects uh, that mm-hmm. are then built up and remade uh, is an important part of the work that you've done. And also the way in which they're reconverted and then uh, connected up with another mm-hmm. compositional strategy. So, for example, the, the Hamlet example. Yes. Would be a good place to so, start. So, uh, what I could do is I could describe two compositions that use totally different techniques. But the first thing is, I spent the first 20 years of my life speaking one language, and that was English. And after that, I began to learn, I learned German, and I found, hey, I'm good at this. And then I, <laughs> uh, Dutch came my way, French came my way, and all of these languages are all part of my life, and Spanish is now getting in there. So language fascinated me from that moment on. I remember when learning German, 
I saw the similarities between German words and English words, except for example, words that begin with a T in English very often begin with a Z in German. So ten is zehn, and tame is zahm. So I noticed that there are these algorithms, you might say, which mm-hmm. combine languages. So language became something fascinating to me around about 1968. And so I'll describe one composition that I made in uh, 1984. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, I decided to, no, it was 1981, as a matter of fact. And I was working in IRCAM Paris in the studios there. And I met some of the spectral composers like Hugues Dufour, Gérard Griset, and they're all, they're all friends of mine, and they liked this piece that I actually produced, inspired by them. Because hmm. I thought, I mean, I knew a lot now about acoustics and studio techniques, and I thought that I could make a piece in which every timbre is actually a phoneme. Mm-hmm. So this piece is called Im Januar am Nil, in January at the Nile, and I went about it like this. I'll just take a minute or two to explain it. I analyzed uh, a total of about 18 sentences that I made in the German language, because German is one of the few languages that is very systematic in in its phonetics. It's not totally systematic. Finnish is much more. But, of course, I know German. And so I was able to look at a German-English dictionary. No, not even English. A German dictionary, and I found 200 words which fulfilled my characteristics, the criteria that I needed. No plosives, p, t, no fricatives, f, s, but only vowels, nasals, liquids, and sounds with very smooth spectra, no noise contained. Then I analyzed these sentences using a speech analysis program, Fourier analysis, which was placed at my disposal. Later, I wrote my own, much later. And I wrote, I, I, I extracted spectra from speech that I myself spoke and wrote a series of programs, which I called my synthrumentation package, Synthesis Through Instrumentation, because I wanted the result to be played by live instruments. Mm-hmm. And they would synthesize the sounds that I was analyzing. So I took some of these sentences, made them out of these 200 words that I found. And I'll give you an example. The piece is called Imianoa Amnil because the sentence I used is Imianoa Amnil Mumien Anmalen. They're all very funny sentences. And this one means in January at the Nile painting mummies. So that sentence contains no noise in the spectra. And through a series of programs, 20 Fortran programs, Later, I combined it all into one Pascal program. But using that, those programs, I came up with a score that I was able to notate. That's one way, taking the phonemes and translating them into notes. Now, if you actually Google synthrumentation, you'll probably find my name coming up. And uh, it'll be, uh, yeah, it'll show what I did. Now, another totally opposed technique was to create a language using percussion. Now, I don't usually think of music uh, composition as a language because I'm not trying to express anything. Mm -hmm. I try to make things. 
a bit like a sculptor. A sculptor might want to express himself, but basically he makes something in order to express himself. And for me, the act of making is more important than anything else. And I use the term compose in the literal sense. I put together. Compose. So, in this piece, I wrote this language. I generated a language in which I would have my own grammar. I would have a vocabulary, but all using percussion instruments. And every word would take up one measure of six pulses. Mm -hmm. And depending on where I placed something, for instance, I translated Hamlet's soliloquy into this language. And the difference between to be and not to be is the bass drum on the third pulse. So if there's no bass drum, it's to be, and if there's a bass drum on the third pulse, it's not to be. So the entire thing, I converted Hamlet's soliloquy into a meta-language that I invented. For instance, at the beginning I say, existing or not existing is the issue, is weather or something. So I also have <laughs> chains of equal signs with is, so a rose is a rose is a rose, uh, was once said. Mm -hmm. And that's the same word three times. But if I say a rose is a flower is a something else, that would be what I did. And then using this meta language, I wrote a Pascal program in the operating system Linux, which then took my parsing. I knew which was a noun, which was a verb, which was a transitive verb, an intransitive verb, and all of these, and put them all, coded them into this program which then output a score. Mm -hmm. And that piece sound, doesn't sound anything like speech. No phonemes involved. So it's impossible to understand unless you learn the language. But I was always joking about, imagine if two percussionists played my piece and they knew it so well, they could actually converse in this language. And you imagine them at the in the orchestra and say, what's this conductor on about? What's he doing? And they would be playing in the back on their percussion to each other. So I used to joke about that, but I myself never learned to understand the language. I just know what I did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the, this whole idea of making and constructing and, and composing is a really interesting feature of how to think about the work of creating, but also listening. So what about the the role of the listener with regard uh, to your work. How do you understand the idea of the, the viewer and the listener? What role do they play? Well, uh, actually, they don't play a role at all because I just think of my own reception. And if there are people who've had a similar upbringing to myself who've been exposed to contemporary music, for instance, I can imagine that some of them might actually be able to relate. Important for me is that I'm satisfied with what I've done and in, on an aesthetic plane. Mm -hmm. The aesthetics are extremely important, but I don't manipulate. I just generate something, put it together, and if I like the result aesthetically, then I'm willing to share it. And a lot of our friends like what I do, so that's great. If I were in Carnegie Hall and the whole audience was standing up and giving me a great ovation, I wouldn't know what to do with that because I don't know those people. But if I... Uh, go with my friends. If my friends are sitting in the audience and they come up to me later, Clarence, you did this and this there, and uh, that's great, I like that. And mm -hmm. Then I can relate to that. So um, what I do is not concerned with any audience. Now, if I played my piece somewhere in the Democratic Republic of Congo, I'm sure they'd all be puzzled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Let, let's talk for a minute about uh, the use of a program as a way of generating the compositional work that you've done. So from a contemporary perspective, there's a lot of um, concern about the, the sort of role of these kinds of technological implements in our lives in terms of doing things for us, um, assisting us, but also taking control of uh, various kinds of um, tasks that we might do ourselves, you know, that in some ways it's pulling us away from our ability to do things and to know how to do things. But I, I think the perspective that you have on this is in some ways that the style of composition that you were developing uh, in a sense was demonstrating uh, something about the machine in relationship to various acts of making? Well, I would say I never tried to develop a style. When uh -huh. my students, whether they were in Santa Barbara or in the Cologne or the Hague, mm -hmm. said, I'd like to develop a personal style. I said, don't make me laugh. Make good music. <laughs> make good music. And so, but in spite of that, people say, but we can always recognize a Barlow. I said, probably because I'm limited. I just can't go beyond a certain <laughs> aesthetic plane. But I don't try to to express myself, to portray myself, my own tastes. So what happens is, uh, for me, using the computer is like taking the bus instead of walking. It just speeds up the process and simplifies it because if I have to keep in mind everything that I was thinking of all the time, and I think very structurally, I've been doing this since around 1970, mm -hmm. actually even the mid-60s, but uh, I began to use the computer in 1971, and it was not because I thought, hey, it's great. Computers weren't around. I was working with mainframe computers. And uh, the Cologne computer, the big one, which was shared by the entire state of North Rhine-Westphalia, uh, they had 100 kilobytes of memory. And we were encouraged not to use more than 8 kilobytes. So I went along with that. It was fine. It wasn't because I was fascinated by the machine. Actually, I once said in an interview, and people in Stanford were all very angry at me, because I said, I hate computers, because they are so boring. They take up all your time, and, uh, and those days used to make a whirring noise all the time. It was very annoying. But I used them because they simplified my work. Mm -hmm. Now... I was the artistic director of the Computer Music Conference in Cologne in 1988. And so I also had to convene a jury, and I was part of that jury. And we listened to such a lot of, excuse my French, because they were all computer music composers who knew which buttons to press. But they had mm -hmm. no ideas and no taste. So I found that there was a way out from all the uh, about 250 applicants in those days, uh, now you'd have thousands. Um, so 250 entries, we chose 42. But only because I suggested to the jury that we not only use the concert hall, but also maybe a, shift, a shipbuilding wharf that I knew of, or a punk club, or a cafe where people could order drinks. Mm -hmm. And because we thought of these different venues, more pieces slipped through into the jury's approval. Hmm. Otherwise, if they were all to be in the concert hall, we would have had seven or eight. Hmm. Amazing. L let's talk for a moment about the, the history of 
how the style of working and the approach to working evolved. So when you moved to Germany uh, to study composition with Zimmermann mm. and other figures of that period, um, can you explain something about the context uh, related to the war and this interest in a new, a new type of music? Related to the, to the war? Second World War. Second World War. Well, when I went to Cologne, I'd just gone through a long period of adjusting to the 20th century. I think <laughs> I was around 19 when I was still writing. Uh, no, 19, I started to write in the style of Bartok. So it was very emulative at the beginning. I started off in the style of Haydn, and then gradually. I never sounded like Beethoven, but I then began to become a heavy romantic. And Rachmaninoff entered my life when I was 17 and 19 Bartok. So when I was 21, I believe, mm-hmm. or 22, mm-hmm. and came to Cologne, I still didn't know the work of Stockhard sufficiently, mm-hmm. who became my teacher later. And I uh, simply couldn't deal with this contemporary music that I found in Cologne, because I was still at late Bartok or whatever <laughs> followed that period. So, I mean, I was somewhere between Bartok and the present, but... Uh, I can't name composers now who mm-hmm. uh, would be typical of what I was thinking. But I also was moving in my own direction, not trying to be myself, but just making things. And you get bored doing the same thing again. People like people, uh, people like composers to have a style so they are recognizable. And then you say, okay, another piece of the same, please. And I kept <laughs> disappointing people who commissioned me because I always changed. So uh, in Cologne, it's how I got to listen to this contemporary music of that time, 1968. Mm-hmm. And little by little, within a few months, I began to say, hey, I can dig this. <laughs> <laughs> and so I caught up and then I even overtook my teacher, Sokhausen, mm-hmm. because he couldn't understand me anymore. Mm-hmm. So, Emily, shall we start with some questions, do you think? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I want to return to and ask something about... Uh, uh, the exchange that you and Peter started having about uh, the use of algorithms in creation. And I wanted to ask you about, uh, I've been reading about the new AI algorithm uh, generation programs where you can just feed in some like three words, you know, and the program will scour the universe of known images and create an image. You know, and so I'm wondering what you think about that because uh, half the people uh, I heard mentioned were, uh, they said, oh, well, this is just like cheating. This is just letting the program do it for you. And then the other uh, artists were saying, no, it's just another tool for creation because, you know, it creates this image and it surprises me and then I go on and work with it, you know. So anyway, I was just wondering what you were thinking about this, this you know, latest iteration of algorithmic creation. Well, I've always believed in natural intelligence as opposed to artificial. <laughs> and I always find that whatever comes out of that corner is just boring. It's, I've never heard a single piece of art or seen a piece of art or heard a piece of music which came out of AI which was convincing. It was just because people used their programming abilities. And I feel that com- computers are not a tool in creation. They are not. They're a tool in execution. 
The creation comes in the brain. And also, I don't call my music experimental, because what you hear is already no experiment anymore. It was a successful experiment, that's the result of the experiment. So I don't experiment in front of an audience. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, hi, Clarence. Um, I'm really curious. You mentioned that you write music for yourself, of course, which I always find very fascinating and very um, interesting from composers of that perspective. But you also have so many wonderful pieces that you've been commissioned for friends and for colleagues and people like that. So I'm curious how the role of who has commissioned you or who the work is commissioned for informs your own process in writing for yourself, as it were. Well, it happens on several occasions that friends of mine who perform instruments or sing, they like what I do, and so they ask me for a piece. And that's a good excuse to write a piece. I never turned any friends down on that respect. When I get commissioned by, uh, for instance, the radio, the radio station in Cologne, it's because I developed a name for myself as a pioneer of computer music. I did it when nobody else was doing it. It seems that I'm the first composer who uh, composed in Germany with computers. So I just did it because I saw a plan for a composition and I knew that I could not realize it in a lifetime. It was going to be a terrible job and I'd be, if I had to restart at any point doing it manually, I would have to go a different path because I would not remember what I had done. I realized that I had to formulate and formalize the ideas for that composition. That was in 1970. Hmm. And so I learned programming in order to make that piece. And little by little, because of my pioneering role, people heard about me and I was invited to conferences and all kinds of things. And so people thought that I was kind of uh, a well-known composer. And they thought well-known composers should be given commissions because they should be more well-known or because we can be well-known because of them. <laughs> so that's why I'm happy to write for my friends. I'm happy to look into a commission, but I know that most often when I write a commissioned piece by people, by authorities somewhere, that they're not going to like it. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Clarence. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate it. I'd like to thank Peter uh, for one more thing than just being here today and being a wonderful uh, guide to the entire thing. He was instrumental in making this happen. Thanks, uh... You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.